On this episode of AvTalk, Mitsubishi wants to buy the CRJ program from Bombardier, and Jason and Seth Miller check in from Seoul and the International Air Transport Association's annual general meeting. Hello and welcome to episode 59 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with... Jason Rabinowitz, and hello again, Ian. How long's it been? Well, it's been, through the magic of recording and editing, it's been a few days since our last section of the podcast, which will air later in this episode of the podcast. Weird. How are you? You've had quite the journey that we'll hear about later on in the show. Yeah, I'm, I'm tired. I want to go to bed, so let's get this over with, but it's been a good trip. <laughs> Fair enough. So let's just dive right in. The big news of the day is that Mitsubishi Heavy Industries is in talks to buy the CRJ program from Bombardier, which, I mean, is pretty big news. I mean, it's news in the way that Bombardier doesn't want it, and they'll probably give it away for real cheap. I just did not expect... Mitsubishi to buy it. I don't really understand it. I think as John wrote, Mitsubishi is being sued by Bombardier about some potential corporate secrets that may have been divulged to Mitsubishi. But does this spell the end of the MRJ, which seems to be a never-ending engineering process with no results in the end? I don't know. But they've renamed it to, to what's the new name of the MRJ? The Space Ghost or, uh, or Space Jet. Sure, whatever. That that makes total sense and doesn't sound <laughs> stupid at all. But sure, it's interesting because nobody really seems to want to buy CRJs. The, the, the 900 doesn't really – isn't a huge seller. The 1000 may as not, well not exist at all. Um, I can't remember the last time a 700 is sold. So I guess they just want to potentially buy up the intellectual value and property of the CRJ line because it's – not really doing Bombardier any favors at this point. Well, I, I mean, Bombardier, you know, got rid of the or divested itself of the the Dash Eight line. This, you know, the Halavan Canada has been reformed, you know, such as it is. So that's done, and I guess you know they're looking to get out of the commercial aerospace industry, and so it's you know next on the list. But I, I think that an interesting point someone made today, uh, kind of in the wake of of John breaking the news, was that. It makes sense in the respect that the MRJ program doesn't have the knowledge it needs, if that makes sense. Like the knowledge base for competing in the commercial aerospace industry isn't quite there because they're basically doing all of this from nothing. And so when you fold in the CRJ program into the MRJ program, you can develop the MRJ on the back of that knowledge you know, writ large, you bring up a good point about the lawsuit. You know, they they buy the CRJ, the lawsuit goes away. So I'm not sure how much that plays into it, but you know, it's, it's a factor to mention, I guess. We'll see. I guess this is one way for Mitsubishi to finally get a product out the door, since the MRJ90 is kind of dead in the water when it comes to flying for U.S. airlines, and the MRJ70 is still quite a ways away. At this point, it's there, it's such an afterthought, I've stopped paying attention to MRJ. What happens here? I don't know. We'll see. It, it's certainly an interesting and odd move. Yeah. And, and I think it's worth kind of putting this one on the back burner until after Paris in a few weeks when 
is sure to be a lot happening. And one of the things that that the MRJ program has been teasing is big announcements in Paris and things like that. I'm not sure if that relates to just the MRJ70 or if it relates to the, the CRJ purchase as well. But it'll be interesting to see what happens and how it happens. And so at least the Paris Air Show should be an interesting time this year. Yeah, well, there'll be a few distractions from the Max at least. Well, yeah, I guess that's to be expected. In any case, we'll see what happens. Earlier this week, the Portuguese investigative body released a preliminary report into the Air Astana E-190 flight that happened, that departed Lisbon, was on its way back after maintenance in Lisbon, but experienced a significant loss of control event that sent the aircraft um, literally spiraling out of control at, at certain points before the pilots finally regained control and then safely landed the aircraft. And this happened last November, and they they released the, the preliminary report this week laying out some of the things that had happened as far as maintenance goes and some aileron reversal issues that, that were introduced during the, the maintenance of the aircraft. But the most striking thing to me is, is the report, which we'll post in the show notes, shows they call it a flyback. So what they did is they visualized the flight data recorder information that came out and they showed the artificial horizon, they showed the control column inputs, what the ailerons were doing, the engine power and things like that. And it looks like something out of like a, a bad flight simulator when, when you're like playing a flight simulator and you just kind of give up or uh, you forgot to set the autopilot and you put your iPad down and then all of a sudden you're, you're spiraling out of control. It, it's just an incredible visual and, and we'll certainly put it in the show notes. But the report is very interesting reading because as we always talk about, it's never just one thing. And so there, there were kind of a, a processes of a failure that, that went into setting this aircraft up for an incredibly terrible ride. And the more I read the report, the more I'm amazed that they were able to land the aircraft safely. Yeah. Remember that at one point, the pilots on board pretty much decided to give up and attempt to ditch the aircraft in the sea. And thankfully, they were able to regain control of the aircraft and landed after a few attempts. But they were, for a while, absolutely determined on ditching the aircraft because it was, at some point, just completely uncontrolled. I, I mean, it, it's the visual that they show in this flyback is you have to tilt your head to even figure out how the aircraft righted itself after this you know, particular maneuver. But the report's certainly worth a read, and, and the, the final report will be very interesting to see what, if any, recommendations they offer for, for making sure this doesn't happen again. Should we go to Mexico and talk about some cocaine? Where are you going with this? I'm going to Mexico to talk about cocaine. Okay. Anything specific? Well, yes, yeah, certainly. A passenger traveling from, uh, from Colombia transferred in... Mexico and was on his way to Japan. And this particular passenger passed away from a lot of cocaine being in his system. Um, he ingested 246 bags of cocaine, which sounds like a lot to me. I know uh, cocaine more than recommended, swallowing which I think expert. Is zero? Zero. I think zero is the recommended daily dose. But he died uh, in flight. And they diverted the Aeromexico 
flight uh, bound for Tokyo. They took the the passenger to to the hospital. I, I'm not sure exactly when he passed away, but I believe it was on the on the aircraft. And then the the flight continued on later. But it was 246 bags of cocaine. Yeah, don't do that. Don't 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 do that. No, not something we we recommend. Actively voicing our uh, advisement not to do that. Cool. Good content. Yeah. <laughs> so Airbus celebrated its 50th anniversary last week with was to be a special fly past in Toulouse with a number of its commercial aircraft lineup. Unfortunately, the weather didn't cooperate, but they still managed to get some pretty great air-to-air footage flying with the Patrie de France and all sorts of, you know, red, white, and blue smoke over the Mediterranean and things like that. So the, the pictures were worth it, but it was really interesting to me because the Avgi community is such that it is. There were people who were very, very upset that certain aircraft were not included. I mean, there are people that are very, very upset about literally anything on the internet. So you shouldn't uh, put too much stock in that. I'm not necessarily putting stock in it, but I'm raising the point of whether or not certain other aircraft should... I mean, saying, okay, we can't do them all, which seems like a, a rather tough logistical challenge. So you can't do the, the 300, the 310, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What would you have liked to have seen? That they didn't include. Honestly, I couldn't tell you what they did include because it was kind of in the middle of the night in uh, South Korea when they did this. Oh, that's right, because you were already there. So they included the A220, the A319 Neo, the A330 Neo, the A350 1000, the A380, and the Beluga XL. So it kind of sounds like all their current test flight aircraft that they have lying around plus the 220. And the Beluga XL, which, which is yeah, basically, which is still not in in service yet. I don't what think happened? so. Yeah, it's yeah, still they used the second one. That was neat. It was the less creepy painted one, or is it the more? Cre- I can't remember which one's creepy. I don't know. They're both at. creepy. They're both kind of creepy. But, but it would have been we'll cool if they you know day. led the pack with the two twenty and then the three eighteen all the way up to the three twenty one, and then the three thirty two hundred and three hundred. Throw an A three eighty in there and. 350s, but you can't do them all. That's a logistical nightmare, I'm sure. I'm sure the whole thing was a logistical nightmare no matter what. I mean, you know, the, flying two aircraft in close formation is all, I mean, when we talk about the, you know, the, the photo flights and things like that, that days of planning. And I can only imagine how much planning goes into flying, you know, what, what six large commercial aircraft plus an acrobatic flight team. I mean, I, I can only imagine that that's a lot of work. Yeah, that's tricky for sure. It's it's more work than I'm willing to put in, but it ended up looking cool. And I, I think it was worth w- waking up a bit early in the morning to to see the pictures come through. So happy 50th anniversary, Airbus. Should we change track to Boeing? Uh, do we have any good news? Maybe. Okay, hit me. What do, what do we got? No, I got nothing. Oh. I got no good news. So the news that we have is basically that there's no news. Oh. And you know the the FAA hasn't said anything about getting the the Max back in the air. I don't think we've seen any scheduled test flights or certification flights for the the MCAS fix. Things are still kind of in flux. What's interesting to me is that the regulators are still not on the same page. And there were a couple articles out this week from quoting airline people running airlines saying, we really would like to see a coordinated response saying that the airplane is safe or 
or you know do it all at once where all of the regulators say okay here we go and and the regulators from various countries have said we're not going to do that and so then you have airlines saying well I'm not going to be the first one to put the Max back in service. I, I think Singapore, which has you know the their Silk Air Max fleet, was like, well, there has to be a. I believe the, the phrase was something like critical mass of operators putting theirs back in the air before we'll consider putting ours back in and the air. Ethiopian said they would be last to do yeah, it. Yeah, they're, they're not going to do it until everybody else is. And I mean that that doesn't sound like a vote of confidence to me. No, and a lot of CEOs and industry people have said that it, it's almost certainly going to be the U.S. putting it in service first because it's one of the a few places in the world where it can operate mainly domestically while not having to worry about crossing jurisdictions and borders and especially Silk Air and Singapore, there are no domestic flights in Singapore. So every flight they'll have to have authorization more than likely to operate the MAX back into those countries. And it really is looking like all faith has been lost in the FAA and the aircraft certification process and what happens now for future certifications and things of this nature. It's really, uh, we we don't know at this point what the process is going to look like in the future, but I think it's pretty clear that changes need to happen. Yeah. And and I mean, I, I would be willing to, to bet a not insignificant sum, some like a dollar, maybe two, that Southwest is the first you know airline to put the max back in service. I, that would not surprise me at all with the US, other US carriers following, following close behind. But yeah, I, I mean, it's just, I mean, I get Ethiopian, but but the other ones to say, you know, that we're not going to put it back in, in service until there's there's been some sort of good number of folks. That doesn't say to me, we're confident that the aircraft has been fixed and we're ready to fly as soon as we get the go ahead. Right. And these airlines are going to have to prove to their passengers, the flying public, that this aircraft is indeed safe. And people have been tweeting a lot recently saying uh, these random people that I never would have expected to know anything about this have asked me, is the 737 MAX a safe airplane to fly? Should I be concerned about it? And at this point, yeah, you should be concerned about it. It's As it stands, It's I'm just going to say it, it's not a safe aircraft until it's recertified and everything is sorted out and then we'll see what happens. But I think it's pretty safe to say the aircraft was not safe. And hopefully when we're all said and done with this, it is once again a safe aircraft, but it's going to be an uphill PR battle to convince the public once again that it is a safe aircraft. And that's something that McDonnell Douglas never really recovered with from the uh, DC-10. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing for people in the industry and people connected to the industry to to say you know this is either a safe or unsafe you know depending on what opinion you have at the end of the day once everything is recertified will i get on it will i get on it or will i get on it or won't i get on it but it's another thing to you know people have been asking me you family members people that are in travel but not in the airline industry and i'm like well i you know i i follow the news more closely than you, but it's very interesting to see who is asking about these types of things. But will people really want to know or, or find out or seek out the information about whether they're flying on a MAX once it's back in service? I mean, or, or how quickly, because is it going to be a 737 is a 737? It's going to be a period at which people do look and seek out that information. And then like all other things, the public has a short memory and they'll forget and then they'll uh, it'll be like it never happened. 
So, I mean, yeah, I tend to agree with that perspective. Or if not never happened, then you know, it, the, the memory will fade rather quickly. But we shall see. No dates, no schedules, but we'll keep you posted. Shall we take a quick break here on the 5th of June and time travel back a few days to South Korea with you and Seth Miller at the IATA annual general meeting? We should do that. All right. We'll be right back from South Korea. Welcome back to current Ian and previous Jason, and welcome now to Seth Miller, who's joining us once again. Jason, as uh, as mentioned earlier, went off to Seoul for the ostensibly for the International Air Transport Association's annual general meeting. But as these things work out, of course, that wasn't the only reason he went. And so Jason and and Seth Miller are joining us to give a little bit of background about the AGM real quick, and then get into the fun stuff that's happened along the way. So Seth, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. And I will testify that Jason did, in fact, mostly attend the sessions of the AGM. He has been Mm -hmm. an active participant. And I even asked the question. He did. He did. He identified himself properly. It was great. I don't think I got an answer, but I asked the question. Yeah, you definitely didn't get an answer. No, no. They kind of. The, I mean, isn't that always the most you know most fun part of any sort of you know large meeting where you can ask a question and and then usually not get your question answered? Well, it means you ask the right question if they don't have an answer prepared. That's fair enough. So let's step back for the folks who who don't aren't familiar with the annual general meeting. Who is meeting and why are they meeting and what are they meeting about? So IAP every year collects all of the CEOs that they can. And it's a kind of an amazing experience to walk into a hotel ballroom somewhere where you get 250-ish airline CEOs talking about what matters to them. And I kind of, you know, I'd like to say amazing things happen and amazing things get done. In reality, they're a lobbying organization and it's a bureaucratic meeting. So not as much gets done as you might like to think would or could, but you still have all these people here who basically run most of the airlines in the world getting together in the same space to essentially talk about what should happen and how things are going to move forward. So it's it's an interesting event. They can't talk about competition. They can't talk about fares or routes or a lot of things like that. But they do talk about things that matter to the industry. I think this year, the biggest deal was talking about environmental issues, you know, carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases and how we're trying to reduce emissions. And all of the stuff around that is probably the most significant bit of the conversation. And yeah, it's a lot of putting agendas on the table to kind of come up with a firm plan in the future to tackle things. It's a little strange in that respect. Like they know that there is a gender inequality gap that they need to fill, but they don't have a plan to do that, but they know they need to do it. Now, to be fair, they have a plan. It involves a lot of studies and seeing if it works five to ten years from now. Studies are, are, are not a plan. Studies are studies. Uh, yeah, and, no, I was looking, being if, facetious If there. you're looking for action, you're not going to find it. What you're going to find is, hey, carbon emissions are a problem. Let's all look to resolve it except for China because they're going to object to it anyway, but we're just going to gloss over that. Yeah, and so like the carbon emissions thing, I don't want to say there's not a plan. 
I got to give the industry credit. The CORSIA, which is an acronym that stands for something important, C-O-R-S-I-A, is something that is going to address this, you know, some of the carbon emissions problems. The industry as a whole over the last decade had committed to cutting its emissions by a decent clip and actually exceeded their goals. By 2050, I think they want to be down to 2020 levels there for total emissions, even doubling the total amount of traffic. So there's there is a lot going on there and those are some firm commitments. Uh, but like Jason said, the idea of can we get the you know more women as exec- senior executives in the industry, the plan there seems a lot less concrete. Yeah, there was also some interesting things. Akbarel Backer from Qatar is their Ayata's chairman or he was the chair of the board of governors. So there's a dedicated professional group of people who actually run the organization. And then there's sort of the airline representatives and board of governors who's 30 or 40 ish of the people uh, represent 30 or 40 of the airlines and they elect or appoint a governor who sort of represents the organization from the airline side. So Akbar Al Baker from Qatar Airways just concluded his term in that role. Karsten Spohr from Lufthansa is taking over in his place. Right. At, at some point, Akbar made a fairly decent, a valid point, I think, in saying that we're doing a lot to mitigate our carbon footprint, but look elsewhere in the transport sector of, of industries that aren't doing basically anything to mitigate their carbon emissions. I would point to buses and, and other things like that, where they're making small gains, but they're still belching diesel fumes out and not really doing much else. They're trying to deflect the bits. Ironically, unless you're in China, where fleets of electric buses are all electric. But, right? Uh, so, unless, you know, you, you count that they're all charging up on the grid from coal power plants. But, well, details. Two things that I wanted to touch on. And, and one is that you mentioned Corsia. And, and Corsia, for, for those that are interested, stands for Carbon Offset Reduction Scheme for International Aviation. Ah, you, I think you, I heard you typing that in Google while I was it, talking. And I wanted to be fair, I, I, I went directly to IATA's website and looked it up. But the second part is with Al Baker is his, he noted that one of the main drivers of carbon emission reduction that, that could be had that the industry, the airline industry seems upset about is the fact that planes are staying in the air too long as part of an air traffic management. There was a lot of talk about that today, about how the air traffic systems are still woefully inefficient that an hour flight turns into an hour and 30 minutes because you have to circle due to there just not being uh, a sufficient air traffic control capacity to handle those flights. And they are correct in that. But the lack of, uh, in a lot of cases, the lack of available air traffic space is due to the fact that there are just too many flights, I guess. So they, in a lot of cases, they're the victim of their own success. Yeah, it, it's a tough challenge and it depends on where in the world you're talking about, right? If you go to China where a massive amount of the airspace is controlled by the military and at random times, for seemingly random times and seemingly random reasons, chunks get shut down, Right. it's really hard for the airlines to control that. If you go to Europe, they, they had a lot of complaint, they being the airlines, had a lot of complaints about how Europe operates in general. And this is coming off of summer 2018, where aircraft delays were a mess and just things didn't go well. And they're really, really worried that it's going to be the same thing all over again this year. But they started producing numbers like 18 million tons of carbon dioxide or something like that. Like, 
huge amounts of pollutants, huge amount of problems, and the amount of time that aircraft in Europe, they believe, are flying extra. And part of it is insufficient staffing at ATC. Part of it is that every country in Europe or most countries in Europe still operate their own air traffic control services rather than cooperating, coordinating, and sort of consolidating down into a more coherent group. So it could be a lot more efficient, but instead what we have is planes flying routes that are longer and slower, and that ends up being more emissions. So it's a tough situation there. So there's some some things happening this week that we'll continue to follow at the meeting, but I want to turn our attention now to kind of the rest of your trip. It's way better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Much, much so, more fun. So let's discuss that. So yeah, we flew out here on uh, Korean Air. We actually both flew out from Boston, even though I was in New York, I chose to fly American Shuttle on my own dime up to Boston, where Korean was... Uh, kind enough to comp us out here to get us out to IATA since they were the host airline, since we are in Seoul, obviously. And we both flew a less than one-year-old 787-9 out here, which was very, very nice. I think you agree with that, right? Yeah. I First of all, I have to say, like, logging in to the website and seeing airlines list, air, aircraft list is brand new. Yeah. That's always new. fun. Anything uh, under one-year-old on Flight Radar 24 shows up as brand new. Brand yeah. new. Brand yeah. spanking it, it, new. It's like, you know. It's an optimistic labeling. Yeah. Ten months is still brand new. So, so yeah. It was but a, we'll take it. It was a 14-hour flight. The entire way was um, daylight. daylight, actually. And I was on the left side of the plane, which had direct sunlight. It was noticeably hotter on my side of the aircraft. And the, the electrochromatic window shades on the 7.8s took care of most of the sun, but not 100% like a traditional window shade would. Um, I would like at this point to suggest that Jason is an amateur because I managed to sort of stall him while we were chatting about seat selection to pick the seat on the other side of the plane where I knew it would be cooler and nicer, and and then tell him that there was only one window seat left for his own selection. Little did I know that when you select a seat when booking a Korean air flight, you you can never change it, apparently, even when you um, go to check in, unless you are registered with a koreanair.com account, so yeah. That's just the case, but the seat's really nice. The food was okay. The portions weren't quite big enough, and the entertainment sucks. Yeah, I would agree with all of that assessment. Great seat, decent meals, really good champagne, actually. I don't know if you had any. I did not. Uh, They serve a nice champagne in business class, and then the entertainment system, the video, the movie selection is woefully inadequate. I I managed to pass the one or two movies I wanted to watch and had enough, but if you want to watch movies for 14 hours and are of a, what I'll say is a Western slash American sort of collection type persuasion, your options are limited. Yeah, so I have a 64 gigabyte iPad and it is currently at 64 gigabytes full right now with video for for the flight back, which is unfortunate but a necessity, but... On arrival in Incheon, we were a little stupid, so we decided immediately to head to Gimpo, the uh, domestic-ish airport here in Seoul. Sort of the in-town airport, so it's like Haneda to Narita, there's Gimpo to Seoul. Right, and we immediately turned around and flew down to Jeju Island because, as one does, you know, we want to 
check out the local flair, see the see the local airlines, and also it turned out to be cheaper to fly down to Jeju, stay there overnight, and fly back up than it was to stay one night at the convention hotel, which is wacky but true. I mean, I, given my experience in conventions, that doesn't surprise me. No. Yeah, it was like a $200 a night hotel in Seoul or $45 each way plus a $50 hotel. Even buying dinner when we got there yeah. and the taxis to and from the hotel, it was cheaper. So we flew down from Seoul to Jeju Island on the, a Jin Air 777-200, which is 343 economy seats, nose to tail. But we paid a whopping $10 extra to sit in the extra legroom economy seats, which is, which is actually... Very nice and a very generous amount of legroom. It had streaming entertainment. It had power outlets, surprisingly, nose to tail. Even an onboard drink service, um, a buy on board, nothing was, was free. But I was actually uh, impressed yeah. by Janair. And like the beer that they were serving was McKellar, which is a f- relatively famous Dutch? D- Danish. 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 Really? Yeah. The, yeah they, that... it's a, it was a crossover thing with the booth project or something like yeah. that i'm sure i got that name wrong but i can send you the tweet that someone corrected me on earlier it was a surprisingly good pale ale that they're serving on board i asked the flight attendant when they came by with the cart to serve me one as well as some snacks and then also bring a beer back over to jason who was sitting on the opposite side of the plane because we both wanted window seats and she was very, very, very confused as to why I would be buying a drink for a random person to on the other fair, side of the plane. I was also confused when the beer showed up. I'm like, "What? What's happening?" She's like, "Over there." Yeah. Like, oh, I, there was a lot of pointing and waving and things like you know the other white guy sitting over there would also like a beer, and I think it sort of worked. So Jin Air was fun. On the way back, um, Seth unilaterally decided to make it. Uh, a bit of a competition on the way back, since this happens to be the world's busiest air route by both the uh, number of flights per day, but also passengers per day on a domestic flight. Passengers domestic, yeah. Right. So I think on any given day, there are 130 to 150 flights one way, just between Seoul and Jeju. So there are almost 300 flights per day round trip. And I was booked on a Korean Air Airbus A22300, which I believe is the smallest aircraft on this route, while Seth chose to fly a Air, uh, sorry, Jeju, Jeju Air 737-800, and our experiences were very, very different. For example, I got in before Jason did, and that's in in that context, I won. And in literally every other context around the trip, I probably did not. Yeah, so his flight was uh, due to depart 10 minutes before mine, but both were scheduled to arrive at the same time, which figured that one out. doesn't really make any sense. But on this route, there are flights pretty much every 5 to 10 minutes between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. I was on the Korean 10.45 a.m. flight, which took off immediately behind the Korean 10.35 a.m. flight. I was on the Jeju 1035 that took off eight minutes ahead of the Jeju 1050. But was also in front of a Jeju flight 10 minutes later, which was delayed by quite a bit. It was very And all of the Jeju flights boarded from the same gate, going to the same place within 30 minutes of each other. It was... You so can imagine re- how that's complicated. I mean, at some point, you just, it seems easier just to, you know, the first 150 people who show up get on that 737. The next 150 yeah. get on that 737. I actually thought about that, especially when one of the flights was delayed. Like, 
why wouldn't you just put like whoever shows up on this plane and literally run it as the bus that it is? Because they're all full. I mean, right, if, but if you, you if you're ready to go, get on the plane. Yeah, I think that makes more sense. I, but at the same time, when I I decided ten days ago to do this ridiculous, like I'm going to buy a different flight thing than Jason and refund. By the way, refunded the ticket that I had previously purchased for the penalty of a, a thousand Korean won, which sounds like a really big number until you understand that it's about eighty five cents. Right. I actually also had to cancel my flight on Korean and chose to cancel. I chose to cancel my original booking because there was an issue with my credit card and I couldn't get a mobile boarding pass. I canceled it and rebooked for a penalty of like 82 cents. So why not? Jason was so upset that he couldn't have a mobile boarding pass that he paid to get one. I need it in in, uh, Apple Wallet to prove that I flew it one day. But it was very eye-opening and seeing... Can we go back to the part where Jason decided that he was willing to pay for a mobile boarding pass to keep in his Apple wallet? You know what? If airlines could charge you for the privilege of doing that, I'm sure they'd figure it out. I think they probably could, and you're the only customer. <laughs> I, I, I think, I there, I think there's collection. Jason and maybe one other person on the face I'm of the planet. That would, I would like whoever that other person is who is almost certainly listening to this podcast to please it, identify please. them. I'm still, yeah. I'm still annoyed that I couldn't get my mobile boarding pass for Janair. I know. I'll never get that one again. I know. But I know. Um, I've been listening to this for like a week now. Yeah, you have. But it was really just interesting to see all the different aircraft that operate this ridiculous yeah. route. It's it's everything. 330, 767, 777, A321, A320. It literally, A220, like 120 or 135 seats up to 380 seats. It's, it's pretty much if there's a wide body. And every with, five minutes. Yeah, if there's a wide body with two hours of downtime. Asiana or Korean will send it on this route just to fill it up rather than keep it at uh, in Seoul for a couple hours. And they used to have 747s running the route as well. Those are unfortunately yeah. slash whatever. Well, uh, Asiana still has some 747s, I think. Not running the route, though. No. Wonder why. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's one of those incredible things that when you think about it, you're like, wait a minute. There can't possibly be that many people flying this one route and every day. And we don't know all why. Day. We, we and there are. We, we don't know why it's it's that busy a route because we know there are like casinos down there and it's kind of like a, a beach. It's a resort. Resort area. It, but yeah. it, it's a preposterous number of flights and seats per day. But they're all full probably because they're like $32 with uh, as a walk-up ticket. Yeah. They are very, very cheap. And uh, there's there's been a lot of reporting on that. Obviously, because IATA is here, they bring in a lot of media and there's been a lot of conversations about that route specifically because it's the busiest. And so it, you know, there's a reason we did it. There's a reason everybody's talking about it. Yeah. And it's people are talking about it. But, you know, you get the interviews with the locals doing it. And they're like, yeah, it was cheap. It's not worth paying for the full fare. You know, it's not worth paying for a full price carrier. Take the LCC and just get it done. And at the end of the day, yes, Jason won. Jason had a power outlet and in-flight entertainment streaming and, and a cup of water. And a cup of water, and I had to pay for a drink on board, and I end up buying a model airplane. So, you know, I paid way more than Jason did, but I got a souvenir at least. But, you know, if you're just a passenger looking to get to the beach, like, it's a 50-minute flight on the plane. There's no real good reason to not take this cheapest flight you can get. Uh, to your point, Ian, earlier about why don't you just let the first 150 people who bought tickets show up, the flight 15 minutes later from mine was $40 more expensive because airline revenue management is a crazy black magic voodoo insanity that no one actually understands. 
And I, if they had done that, I would they <laughs> like if they had did it this other way, they would have lost some money on that other ticket that I might have bought for the later flight. I don't know. But yeah, it's a weird, weird world. And I don't understand why these flights all exist. No. And why they're all full. I mean, they're, they're there full. can't be that many people on vacation. Right. They're full because they're cheap. But we flew on like a weekday, didn't we? Thursday night down, Friday morning back. Yeah, so we flew two weekdays at odd hours on the flights were packed. It, it doesn't make any sense to me, but here we are. You'll have to do some more research, maybe the flight four, four or five more times, and, the, and then there you go. I'll actually try all the airlines, Korean, Asiana, Jeju, Tway Air, I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, Easter Jet, uh, is that it? Jin. Jin, Jin, we did that. Uh, so it's, it's it's a number of airlines At least all six. competing on the same route. Air Busan, maybe? Probably not from Jin. Probably, Probably not. not from Genpo, yeah. though. But they're all, all competing for the same, I mean, scraps of passengers at this point. It's, it's Can crazy. you call them scraps and then there's like millions of them? I mean, there are millions of them, but I guess if you, you charge 32 bucks a pop times uh, how many tens of thousands a day, it adds up. Yeah, it wasn't, I will say it's interesting, like the 767 flying the route don't have winglets. No. They're uh, domestic configurations. And Korean 739s are also non-ER, non-wingleted versions, which are super rare. And it basically comes down to the winglets really matter if you're flying longer stage lengths. But if you fly a bunch of short hops, the winglets actually are too heavy and are not efficient at the lower altitudes. Right. So Same reason uh, you don't, you don't get the benefit. had the 747-400D, which did not have winglets. But those are yeah. long gone. Anyway. There's one floating around that got converted. To what? It's the GE. I'm pretty sure it's the, the current GE oh, 747 right. test bed. Yeah. The, yeah, they man. added winglets to, or was it a, it was a regular 747-400ER-400 that they removed the winglets from? It's one or the other. Something like that. So how are you getting home at the conclusion of the meeting? So I am taking the nonstop uh, sold to JFK on the A380, which... It's a little weird and, and sad to say that it's an A380, which is great, but it's an older aircraft, so it has their older product. So I'm a little less excited about that. But uh, get to JFK around 9 o'clock. By the time I get home, it's 10.30. And then the very next morning, 6 a.m., I have a United flight at a LaGuardia. Finally, the new terminal with United at LaGuardia. So that'll be exciting but delirious if you can't hear the background noise on this week's episode, it's the world's smallest violin playing for Jason on his terrible <laughs> travel schedule. <laughs> terrible. So, I'm, so ta- I'm taking the 787 nonstop back to Boston because that's where I live and that's what I'm doing. So for those listening to the podcast, at the conclusion of this segment, we'll come back to Jason and I talking and I'm going to ask him how he's feeling. So we'll find out. My mood is going we'll to find be out after the break whether or not Jason survived. He'll have far less sochu in his system at that time. Yes. Well, Jason, Seth, enjoy the rest of the general meeting, and I'm sure if anything newsworthy pops up, we'll we'll be discussing that outside the context of this particular segment. But I want to thank you both for for taking the time to fill us in a little bit about what's happening in Seoul and on your travels. Seth, thank you so much as always for joining us, and we will talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks as always. Take care. Welcome back to the 5th of June and Jason no longer in South Korea. So we we talked about your long travel back. You survived. I did. Obviously. So you flew Seoul to 
Boston, New York, DC. Where did you go? I went Boston, Seoul, Jeju, Seoul, JFK, Dulles, and then took Amtrak back to New York just a few minutes ago because I chickened out for my flight because I thought it was going to be very delayed. And was it very delayed? It was just the the usual amount of delay. <laughs> the regular delay. Yeah. No four hour camp out on the taxiway. No, I, I was rather surprised that it was not as bad as I thought it would be. But whatever, I booked the train and saved some money. There you go. <laughs> it all works Planes, out in the end. Trains and I got and automobiles. Buy a disgusting sandwich on Amtrak. We'll put that in the show. No, we won't put that in the show notes. So we've talked a lot about planes going further and you know, really stretching the, the limits of how long you can fly and, and things like that. And a couple pieces came out this week that, um, that go in, into that. And the first is that Airbus is looking to have the A321 XLR ready for a 2024 entry into service. So they've got the A321neo, which is the re-engined A321, then they introduced the A321LR, which can go roughly 4,000 nautical miles. Then they've got the A321XLR to target entry into service within five years. Right. No, so, all this is is uh, wing and weight upgrades, so it can carry up to 220 passengers over 4,000 miles or 7,410 kilometers, which just seems like a lot of miles on a narrow body. I've been thinking about this because we talk about narrow body versus wide body. And I really want to know what if they're set up for long haul, if, if it's not like squish seating, you know, like on a on a New York, Chicago flight on, on Spirit or something like that, where you've got 28 inches. If it's set up for, we know we're going to fly these planes on long haul, what's the difference? Well, I've thought about that a fair bit. And 220 passengers on, on a 321 is pretty much max capacity. And they have to do some rather unpleasant things to be able to get that amount of passengers on the 321. And a lot of that is centered around the the galleys in the front and rear of the aircraft and also the laboratories and nobody likes what they have to do to, to make that happen not the crew no, that, not the passengers true. and airlines and employees have been rather outspoken about that especially JetBlue has pretty much said yeah this sucks nobody likes it but we have to do it because we need to make money uh, they've made some modifications to it to make it a bit more pleasant but this is the kind of thing where they squeeze two lavatories in the in the rear and one of the jump seats for the flight attendants is literally in the door of the lavatory. It's also there are just three lavatories on board, one in the front, two in the back, and that's 220 passengers over, what, a seven, eight-hour flight. That's not a lot of wiggle room there, is it? So you've answered my question rather thoroughly. So thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> so really what we're talking about is not a single aisle versus – you know, wide body, it's it's a configuration issue that could be solved, but the economics aren't there. Right. And in, in order to make this work over this distance, you need to put as many people in as possible. And to do that, you have to, like I mentioned, do some things that make the aircraft a little less comfortable than you would like. On the other end of the spectrum from extended range narrow bodies, we go to these very, very extended range wide bodies and, and where Qantas is kind of nearing thoughts nearing announcements nearing something regarding what the, the we've 
come to known as Project Sunrise, where they want to fly from the east, east coast of Australia to London. And so Airbus said that both versions of the A350 are, are going to be – they're going to make that work. Boeing is in the running with the, the 787. And the one thing that – Jason, I know you'll be disappointed about this – is that Qantas said that you're not going to be able to sleep in the car. I'm not disappointed because I knew it was never going to happen in the first place. So you can't be disappointed if you never expected to think that actually happened. Uh, that that's a very yeah, pessimistic. This is view the things, uh, but module that Airbus and Saffron had demoed at the Aircraft Interior Expo uh, earlier this year, maybe it was last year, where they would basically take out cargo capacity in the hold and convert it into kind of a passenger area where it's either bunk beds or an exercise room or a library, and it's all nonsense BS. It's never going to happen. Um, certification issues, height issues—you can't actually stand up down there if it's uh, if you're in this cargo container that's inside because it's meant to be module. It doesn't make any sense. It's not economical. So instead, Qantas said they'll put like a stretching area, which is I'm sure going to be in the galley, and no one's going to do anything. They're going to tell you how to stretch or whatever. But in reality, you're going to be in your seat for however many hours those flights are going to be, whether they're. 18, 19, 20 hours, whatever. It's not going to be great. I, I don't see the appeal in these super, super long haul flights, but apparently enough people do to make Qantas want to do it. I mean, yeah, it's beyond just wanting to do it. There's got to be at least just enough money there to to make them think that it's a worthwhile endeavor. I mean, Qantas has had really good luck with their their London Perth flights are not luck, but really good success with their, their London Perth flights. And at so IATA this year, um, oh, not this year, last week, Alan Joyce, the CEO of Qantas said they do need to actually receive, I guess, uh, concessions from their crew to make this work. They need work rule modifications because as it is now, it, it appears that they, they can't actually operate these flights without um, work rule changes. So they, they, this is not just the kind of thing you get the aircraft and do it. There needs to be some significant uh, debate to, before this can get up and running. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm sure we'll we'll see that in the coming months, maybe maybe years. We'll see how long we're talking, how many episodes it takes to to get to the possible launch of one of these flights. But we'll, we'll check back in when 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 they make a decision on what aircraft they're going to use, I guess. Let's close the show with a rather interesting thing that happened today. The Dakotas, so the, the C-47s, the, the military variant of the DC-3, gathered in, in Duxford and flew across the channel to commemorate the 75th anniversary of D-Day and flew over the beach in Normandy and actually dropped, uh, I won't call them paratroopers, uh, although some of them were. There was, I believe, a 96-year-old gentleman who... The last time he uh, jumped out of an airplane over France was in invading the country. Oh. So in in 1944. So I mean, just some some fascinating stuff. But there, there were 30 Dakotas gathered. Uh, there were some Spitfires and some other. There was a, a beach something. I, but just really, you know, fascinating that it all kind of came together and they all flew over in, in formation to to mark the 75th anniversary. So we'll put a link to the playback in, in the show notes. But but just something that was you know kind of a, a moving thing to see happen you know 75 years uh were we able to track day. a majority of them 
Yeah, yeah. Most of them were were trackable at one point or or another. I mean, you know, when the when the planes are 80, 79, 80 years old, it's hit or miss when they're flying at, you know, two, three, four thousand feet. But as they climbed up, it, it was um it, it was quite good to watch the whole crowd go over. Usually when and we've talked about this before, usually when there's a formation flight, like with the Airbus flight, there's a leader and they'll announce how many aircraft are with them. But in this particular case, most of them had their, their transponders on and active. So that, that was fun to see. Excellent. That's uh, very cool to see indeed. Jason, I think it's time to call it an episode and, and let you get some rest because you've been up for eight days at this point. But at least most of it was on a wide body air. There you go. <laughs> I want to thank everyone for listening. As always, if you heard something you liked or something you didn't, drop us an email, podcast at fr24.com. We, we love your feedback and we like hearing from you always. We appreciate anything you can do to leave us a review or comments on iTunes. Uh, it really helps other people find the podcast. And let your friends know that you listen to a really excellent podcast called Aftalk. We appreciate that as well. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason. Rabinowitz, and thank you for listening. Bye-bye.